Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast for the relentlessly curious. This season, our host and Applied Curiosity Lab's chief curiosity seeker, Becky Saltzman, will be sharing the studio with ACL's chief experience producer and favorite sister, Jennifer Felberg. The lens is, and always will be, curiosity. Each week, fun and formal conversations center around one delectable curiosity bite, designed to give your brain the time and ideas to think about thinking, to flex your curiosity muscle, and maybe even revolutionize the way you think. Sometime during the middle of my high school career, there was this group of kids that came from Southeast Asia. They didn't speak English. We didn't know anything about them. We weren't taught anything about their life or what had happened. And we just called them boat people. Very sensitive. But the school didn't do anything to integrate them. So we didn't know anything about what they did. And I was in a speech class and there was a kid that got up in his broken English and he was we were supposed to do 30 second little introductions about ourselves and maybe like a two minute speech. And he got up and started talking about his life. He didn't understand. And he took up the whole class. And throughout that talk, I learned about the atrocities in Cambodia and Pol Pot. A lot of the kids were just sitting there with tears coming down their faces. I felt it sounded a lot like the Holocaust stories that I had grown up with. And I was thinking about that because you weaseled me in to being a judge for some of these speech and debate tournaments. And I didn't know what to expect, but I was in this one event and it was a dramatic interpretation. So they were reading and or not reading, but memorizing. I guess you know what that is. They were memorizing. Yes, I do. Yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) Memorizing dramatic pieces and then performing them. And at the beginning, the high school girl said, just so you know that there are some things in here that could be triggering. So if you are at all triggered, you want to you probably want to consider leaving. And I thought to myself, that's weird. There was only two other kids there. So neither of them left. And I was the judge. And the whole time she was talking, all I could think is, what is supposed to be so triggering? I was distracted. I couldn't even concentrate on her piece because I literally could not figure out what could possibly have been triggering. So I missed the whole content of her speech because I was distracted. And at the end, I still didn't know what what would have been triggering. Mm-hmm. And I thought, God, I mean, that's too bad because if I had been warned that this kid was going to be triggering when he was talking about essentially the killing fields, I would have never even gotten into listening or learning about what he his experience had been. Or maybe you would have, but a lot of kids would have got up and walked out the out the door and never learned a thing. Right. I was curious when you are as a speech and debate coach, I'm assuming a large part of your job is like a football coach to get your team to win, right? Mm -hmm. How do you think about advising your kids whether they should be giving trigger warnings before they do their speech? And do judges even think about that? How does that whole thing work? It's becoming more and more prevalent. What do you mean? In tournaments. I mean, most of the things that we do, especially even debate, but both speech and debate actually have some controversy. I mean, that's really the whole point of doing a lot of these things is bringing up controversy, discussing it, learning about it. And to constantly have to do trigger warnings as a coach, I don't particularly like it. Do I have to adopt it so that our team can win? I had one of my competitors competing in prose. They were reading a piece written by somebody else. Mm. And she did not do a trigger warning because we did not advise them. She asked if she should do it. And we said no. And when she got to the part where I think she was raped in school or something like like date raped, three kids got up and walked out in the middle of her performance and threw her off a little bit. She lost. 
based on that, the judges said that she should have given a trigger warning ahead of time. That's not part of the rule. That's not part of the things that you need to keep in mind when you're performing. But I guess now it's becoming more and more something that we should be aware of, which personally, I'm not for, but I don't know if I need to adopt it this year. Do you think the judges were influenced by the fact that the three people walked out? If those three yes. people, so if these those three kids had not walked out, you think the judges wouldn't have? Nope. Right. Nope. I think that they were, and that could have been a strategy, which I think my gal thought that maybe it was a strategy because they were competing against her. So she thinks that they got up and walked out because she was definitely the top I mean, she wins in all of the tournaments oh so they strategically did that so that's wh what she believes but i do believe that if they hadn't gotten up and walked out she would have been fine and she would have won like she has in all of the other tournaments and that has huge ramifications for college scholarships mm -hmm. and all kinds of things what if the research was completely counter to providing trigger warnings? That would be difficult. I think it might be helpful to know that. In this particular instance, I think it would be helpful to know whether it's beneficial or not. And then make the ruling. It's not in the rules yet. I'll be interested to see this year if it comes up in, when we're doing rules. Recommending that kids do... That how, do do trigger warnings. The whole time that I was listening to this one girl going on and on uh, doing her performance, I could not identify what she would... I mean, how who, how would you identify what to warn people about? People could be triggered by all kinds of things. Yeah. Would it just be obvious, scary things like rape and murder? Or could it be things like giving someone the stink eye? It's a slippery slope. That leads me to the curiosity bite. If you, <laughs> if you had to choose, <laughs> if you had to choose between truth and social justice, what would you choose? It depends. I'm fairly liberal, so a lot of the things that I think I would feel good about would be social justice, but sometimes the truth hurts, and you might have to go with the truth, what and if, it wouldn't feel good. <laughs> I mean, what if the truth was at odds with how we see the world? I mean, I think to myself about the affect heuristic. So the affect heuristic is that the way we feel about something influences our decisions in irrational ways. So for example, a simple example is I like Teslas, I should invest in Tesla. Mm -hmm. Well, the truth is I should look at the price to earnings ratios of Tesla. I should see if the stock value is there to the extent that I could be more data driven about investing in Tesla. It really shouldn't matter whether I like Tesla or, or not. If we made all decisions based on what feels right or wrong, I can't even imagine Think about citing scholarship, using someone's scientific findings and citing that. And now let's just say that the scientist is a racist or a serial rapist or someone really bad. And we discover that 20 years later, like we did about James Watson of Watson and Crick, who won the Nobel Prize for the double helix and DNA. James Watson was a huge racist. He was big into eugenics. He claimed that black people were genetically inferior to white people in terms of intelligence. And yet his research on the double helix and DNA is foundational to science. He won the Nobel Prize at the time. But since then, he has been on different kinds of he's been venerated in different kinds of ways. And some of those things have been taken away from him. Because, like Michael Jackson. Well, think about Michael Jackson. Should we listen to his music? I think that has lower stakes for the truth because <gasps> the pursuit of truth is different. So, for example, if Michael Jackson came up with some unique 
He came up with the moonwalk, Becky. (laughs) We can totally build on that. We cannot build on the moonwalk in the same way we can build on science. And I don't think he even came up with the moonwalk anyways. I don't either. Okay. Because I think that we should look at comedians differently than we look at musicians and that we look at scientists. The question is, what if the truth is at odds with social justice. What if we actually find out that women in some ways are inferior to men on average, not between the differences between individuals is greater than the differences between average groups, but we find out some kind of research finds out that women are inferior to men in physics. I'm making that up. There's mm-hmm. probably more women physicists than yeah. men, but you know, just some, yeah. just for sake of argument. Or that Asian people from this region of China are genetically superior on spatial recognition or something like that. But that is at odds with we're all equal, whatever. Mm -hmm. And also certainly at odds that there are, like I said, greater differences between individuals than there are groups. But on average, should we pursue that information? Yeah. And you know what I don't appreciate? What? (laughs) You've taken my list. What's your list? So my list is the top five social justice issues. And I think you hit on, I think, at least two of my social justice issues. Well, let's deal with them one at a time. Okay. Well, actually, three of them. You know what? I'm I'm leaving. (laughs) We're breaking up. We're not breaking up. Okay, we'll get back together. Should universities provide trigger warnings and safe spases? Okay, because I think that's different for universities than it is for other places. Because universities are a place where theoretically anyway, the pursuit of truth and knowledge is the whole reason for being there. I same mean, with speech and debate. Exactly. Same with speech and debate. Yeah. But co- but that's a competition. So that's different. Like you could strategically tell your kids if trigger warnings are in there and it's not defined very clearly what trigger warnings should and shouldn't be in there. Yeah. If you're, do you want to win or if, do you want to be right? No. That's you, a, yeah. And you could say no. Susie Cream Cheese is is going to nationals. You three people need to sit in on the audience. And if you catch that Susie Cream Cheese's competitor doesn't give trigger warnings for the slightest thing, get up and leave. What would it be then? I mean, no, what I'm saying is like you could could get your team to win. You could use it. All right. Back to the universities, though, right? Right. The pursuit of knowledge is the reason for universities. And if you have to create safe spaces, what do the safe spaces do? Okay, so let me answer. I'll try to answer. Okay. If the safe spaces are there to teach people how to grapple with ideas that they might not have been trained to grapple with in their previous, in their first 18 years of life, right? Mm-hmm. When they're in university. Mm-hmm. Then the safe space, reason for the safe space wouldn't be to isolate you and coddle you, but it could be to use empirical research to train you to grapple with ideas that may be uncomfortable. So if that was the reason for the safe space, I don't think it is, is it? I don't think so either. Okay. But if it's it, funny because I was speaking of speech and debate, I was in Dallas for the national speech and debate tournament. Right. And they did a debate on Israel. And the person that was well, anti gave me a little bit of anti-Semitic stomach. And it was difficult for me. I was definitely, what you would say, triggered. Okay, describe what it means to be triggered to you. To me, I felt my face get red. I felt my heart beat go up a little bit. I was just in the audience with like a thousand people and I was watching this debate. There were physical changes that happened to me. So obviously it was a trigger. What'd you do? I had to talk to myself. I had to work it out. I was like, this is good for me to hear people that do not have the same views as you and understand that this is an academic situation and it's healthy. And I worked myself down. My 
blood pressure went down and, and I actually was able to watch the debate. To me, that seems healthy. My question is, would you pursue evidence that found out that not hearing that in the long run is worse from a neurochemical standpoint? Like you could actually take the feelings out and look at it from a neurochemical standpoint. Like you could really look at the neurology and you, you found that studies show that subjects A who have training to deal with it and are not having to be warned and who do not have space, safe spaces, but specifically have this kind of training and subjects B who have safe spaces and trigger warning over time, you could do some research and find out what's the better outcome. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, that would be interesting truth that might be at odds with the social justice of providing triggers, I think trigger so. warnings and safe space. I so, think a lot of people would be like, no, you need to just be sensitive to other people. You don't deal with it the same way this other person deals with it. So we all need to be sensitive. There's not enough common humanity in how our bodies react as humans to do this kind of research because each person's experience is so different. Each person's experience, I want to say so unique, but you're either unique or you're not unique. So you can't be so unique. But each person's experience is <laughs> unique that there is not enough human commonality to even do this experiment. Well, that would mean we would never have any medicine. We would never have any research to understand human behavior or how, because each individual person is so different, science about humans ceases to exist. Right. Okay. So I'm going to vote on that one. I'm going to put a vote in. I'm going to vote that it would be better to seek the truth as to what is better for college students to become more flourishing human beings as defined by however we define flourishing. We should find out what that would be and not assume that it's trigger warnings and safe space without real research and data. Then you can get into how they block speakers from coming even onto their campus. But if people were prepared, and also, you know, let's be honest, I don't think that every speaker is the same. And this is a big issue. Mm -hmm. And I know that Jonathan Hyde's The Coddling of America. I read that book. I can't remember exactly the title. I can't remember the exact title. I'll put it in the show notes. But, you know, he's talking about how this is such a big issue and how American children and young adults have been coddled. And I don't think that people look at this deplatforming issue with a really fair eye. There's a difference between between having someone that is a scholar that might have views that are completely at odds with what we want to believe or hear, or maybe even views that are not very robust scholarly views. It could be to take their ideas and be afraid of ideas, to be afraid of grappling with ideas, to attach ideas so much to the person that we can't even grapple with ideas is the antithesis of why I would want to send my kids to college and why yeah. I would want to go to college. Me too. I, I don't want to necessarily hear, you know, Richard Spencer. He, he's a huge racist. I don't really feel like I need to hear about Richard Spencer because he's not a scholar. I'm not going to the university to hear every Milo Yiannopoulos or Richard Spencer because they're not scholars. But like a Charles Murray who wrote The Bell Curve, and he talks about genetic differences in intelligence. To be able to debate Charles Murray and to understand what that book says and really grapple with the scholarship, that would be highly powerful. He's a scholar. You might think his work is ridiculous. You might question his scientific method. You might even ask, why are you so maniacally focused? Why are you so obsessed with this Those topic? are all great questions that should be asked. But, to but if you squash it and not let them even come onto your campus? How can you ask those questions? And the goal should be to prepare students. Frankly, I think universities should filter their students by telling them whether we are going to support safe spaces and whether we're going to support triggers and what kinds of speakers we're going to. So people can make decisions. 
I don't want to go to Brown because they are going to be open to Charles Murray types scholars. And or I do or I do want to go to University of Chicago because they're going to be less likely to stifle scholarship and they're going to teach me how to grapple with ideas that I might not agree with. I mean, it would be nice if those teachings happened at a little younger age. They screen students for all kinds of things. If you're an athlete, if you're right. not, why wouldn't you screen students? Why wouldn't you tell students? This if, is our culture. This is our culture. Don't, there's other cultures. Don't, don't choose us if you don't, if you don't want this. Okay. Right. What's the next one? Abortion. What's the question? What is your stance? This is a issue for social justice warriors is stay out of my uterus. This is a woman's decision. And if I want an abortion, I should be able to have it. I mean, I'd like people to stay out of my uterus entirely. Would you? <laughs> I, I kind of would. Oh, yeah. I definitely would. <laughs> yeah, uterus. Well, actually, I don't even have a uterus. What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> should you even be able to weigh in on this because you don't have a uterus? You're no different than a man. Good. I don't have to weigh in on this. Okay. Well, it's then, all you, baby. I will weigh in because it's I, all you. I couldn't think of a song. You so. can't just make up a song. <laughs> it's all you. All right. So back in the day, a baby born before nine months didn't survive. Then it was eight, seven, six. I remember when our cousin was born, it was like maybe he was born at five months. And it was like, oh, a miracle that he survived. And now I think a baby born at five months is just kind of like, yeah, just a preemie, but barely even a problem. So if that continues to the point where science gets down to the moment of conception, there is a viable mitosis. It would just be like, some cells that had just divided. Like there's this clump of cells. And if you choose, because it's my choice to get this out of my uterus, and I choose from that point any time until the baby could be born any time, then that argument kind of goes away. Because if I take that those that clump of cells out of my uterus, then it's not your uterus anymore. Then it's not my uterus. So the argument goes away. Who's responsible then once it comes out of your uterus? Right. And that becomes a different question. But it makes the get out of my uterus social justice argument a little bit tenuous. I don't think long term that's a very wise. I mean, I'm a hugely staunchly pro-choice. I don't even care about fetuses. I really do not think. I would be pro-choice too, but I can't weigh in because I don't have a uterus. You can't. Damn. Sorry. What's the next one? Gender identity. Should gender identity be added to discrimination laws? Oh, for work type mm -hmm, of thing? Mm -hmm. All right. What do you think? Yes. Okay. You think that gender identity should be? I Yeah. I don't see gender. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'm looking at you and I think those are moves. <laughs> Because I, I don't see gender. Okay, that's not what we're supposed to do. I remember in high school, I had this t-shirt and I was a social justice warrior and I wore this t-shirt that said, love, see, no color. And I just thought, why do people have to focus so much on race? Can't we all just get along? Can't we just not see race? And now it's like all we're supposed to see. Now you have to identify your pronoun. This is the affect heuristic, all right? It feels bad to think about people being discriminated based on their gender. That feels really bad. Yeah. But I would expect that there would be a lot of unintended consequences from making discrimination laws, putting discrimination laws in the books regarding discrimination against gender identity, because you would then when you sign up for a job, you would absolutely have to weigh in on your gender because otherwise you wouldn't know. But that shouldn't affect any type of work. I mean, I don't care how you identify yourself because... As long as you're doing your job, I don't I really don't care what if you're a male or a female. Yeah, you don't. But what I'm saying is, for example, take a different kind of uh, discrimination law, take the race or take marital status or take disability. All right. 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 Well, 
I you can see that I have a disability. That disability would probably go into my HR file and then it would be identified that this is a disability upon which I can't be discriminated. But that means you would have to register your your gender identity with HR. Yeah, so what's the problem with that? There's nothing, but then what if I didn't know? Like, I can see that you have a disability. So I could then actively. No, no, no. <laughs> then I could actively discriminate against you, right? Like, I could actively discriminate. But what if I didn't even know what your gender identity was? So then you had to wear a nameplate that said, I identify as they or T. That's what him. They, That's what we had to do at the tournament. That means that I have to acknowledge what your gender is identity is, at least today, because if it's fluid, it might be different tomorrow. Mm. And then I have to make sure. And how do these laws get enforced? Like, what are the unintended consequences? I think it's horrific. Like, this is the affect. I love a Tesla, right? I think it's horrific. And I'm not equating the two, so whatever. But I think it's (laughs) horrific that people would be discriminated based on their gender identity. But that's a very different consideration than whether there should be laws in the books against it. That needs to be researched. That's what I'm saying about the truth versus social justice. If you're saying that gender isn't measurable because you can't catch it because it's fluid, I'm not saying that the law shouldn't be in the books. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I can't answer until I would know how they would do that and what the unintended consequences. And I think that there would need to be like, how does the law work and how do you enforce it? And I, I, So it, you're kind of saying that if you said we need to research this more, we need to figure out a way to measure it. People would get pissed. Should, people would get pissed. They, get they pissed. would say that you are anti. Yeah. yeah. And I'm saying, I don't Is know. Is that true? You know, you think about reparations for slavery. I mean, it's true that this country was built on the backs of black people from that were imported against their will from Africa. And it has ramifications today. So it doesn't mean, yes, then repar- what does reparations mean? I mean yeah. What would we do? We need to research it. And when you say that, and you're not just automatically for whatever the social justice position is, it's like truth. It's like the pursuit of truth isn't even valuable if it gets in the way of social justice. So that's why I would actually prefer, for the most part, prefer the pursuit of truth. But I understand. Well, that's because you're a bitch. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not supposed to say that. (laughs) Here's another one. Women on the board of directors, should businesses be required to have women on boards not that they that women can be but that they should be required to have women so public companies type of thing so a public company would be required to have at least one woman board of directors that's that's what i meant to say (laughs) (laughs) i've never really thought about that me neither that seems somewhat ridiculous but here's what i would say about dictating diversity in business even though it feels right, like it seems like why wouldn't a board of directors want a woman dictating things that companies should do to help humans flourish? You look at the pharmaceutical companies. Actually, let's put the women. I don't think that it should be dictated that women are on a board of directors. So I'll just say that. Yeah, me neither. Even though I think women should take, they should dictate that at least one man has to be. Because there you go. You know, there totally you fine. Go. <laughs> but I don't think that should be something that we should be spending time legislating. However, look at pharmaceutical companies. And we are so critical of the pharmaceutical companies and the opioid epidemic. Yeah. And you think about Obamacare, for example. So Obamacare or the Affordable Health care put in something that said that insurance companies will reimburse hospitals based on many things. And one of the many things is the rates of satisfaction from from their customers or their patients. And you see this direct correlation. I don't know about cause, but it's suspicious of the number of opioids being prescribed by these hospitals because we can't know when we have a surgery 
whether it was really the best or the worst. We just know how we feel. So we. So if we have the pain medication, we feel fat. And then we give a very good survey to the hospital and they get reimbursed. That becomes a little bit of a misaligned incentive with regard to the opioids, right? So now we're saying, okay, the pharmaceutical companies need to be responsible. But I haven't checked with my financial advisor to see that all of my financial investments, all of my investments upon which my retirement is based, upon which my kids' future and college for your kids and all that, I haven't looked to see are all of these investments aligned with my social justice positions. I just said, I mean, maybe I would say don't give to some racist whatever, but I just said, give me the return that will allow me to pay my bills when I'm 80, that will provide money for me so I'm not a burden to society. And if I'm looking at my social justice position and investing accordingly, I might be like on the streets. Yeah. Actually, Laura, our financial advisor, she actually asked us, are there any companies that you wouldn't want to invest in? Or are there certain issues that you want to... She asked you that? She did. Oh, brilliant. What'd you say? We said... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We said, yeah. No, we said as kind of what you just said. As long as they aren't these horrible companies that do slave trade or anything like that, then we're okay. Like, I don't know, go for it. Whatever's going to make us some money, honey. That's the problem. Yeah. I mean, you look at Caterpillar and they are doing, they do a lot of the construction in the West Bank. So a lot of people want to protest against Caterpillar. I mean, how much research do you have to do with these companies who, by the way, are required to provide shareholder, fiduciary shareholder responsibility? I mean, they have, they're, prov- they're supposed to give returns. How much do we look at the truth, which is, we need money to retire or Mm -hmm. we need money when we're old and we can't work. I'm not talking about retiring at 50 or 60. I'm talking about we got to be in a nursing home. We got to pay for it. Right. How much do we look at that versus how much do we make sure that each decision that these companies make? In other words, do they have a gender identity discrimination law? Do they have? Uh, And who has the time? (laughs) I'm tired. So here is. I'm tired of the game. (laughs) I'm tired of the game. Would you, going back to the curiosity bite, my question to you is if you had to choose between social justice and the truth, and this is a general statement, which would you choose? Probably now after this podcast, the truth. You would, even if it was at odds with what you wish and hope for a flourishing society. You know, probably it would depend <laughs> on if it affects me. That is leads me to the sort of fact. Woo-hoo! The sort of fact comes out of, yes, TPU. TPU! Turkish, Turkey prestigious university. university. Our favorite prestigious university in of all, all the- prestigious universities. Studies show that 68% of the people who actually say that they would vote for social justice over truth can't handle the truth. <laughs> <laughs> That doesn't even make sense. (laughs) Courtesy (laughs) of Sort of Facts. Thanks for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes for every episode of ACLR and links to all resources mentioned at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog. It's there that we'll wait to read your answers to each week's Curiosity Bite. Two, in order to avoid missing curiosity-bitten conversations, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other spots that podcasts hang out and wait to be discovered. 
toss up a review, especially if you have nice things to say. Finally, for all things Applied Curiosity, including information on workshops and your free membership to the Tribe of the Curious, go to AppliedCuriosityLab.com. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.